We've been in this sermon series upwards for several weeks now. We've covered several of those. One of the things I've done on some of the words that we've studied, uh, we've taken time to have a, a kind of a part two of these sermons just to highlight these these really crucial words. Um, and love is one of those crucial words. And so today is the part two kind of looking at, we looked at how essential love is, how important love is, the, the, its prominence in revealing to us our second birth or our being born again is evidenced by how we love. And today we're just going to dig in a little bit deeper and try to define the word love. Uh, it's a word that's used in everything in our society from pizza and football to your football team to how you feel about your spouse. I mean, I love pizza, I love the Steelers, I love Clemson football, I love Shelly. And obviously those words, even though it's the same word, must have a, a wide variety of meaning because obviously Shelly's much better than pizza. That's obvious. And so today as we look at that and look at the word love in the Bible, we're going to just try to dig into that word a little bit and look at the biblical definition and challenge ourselves to understand that a little bit. This is where we started. First John, this is just from first John chapter four, verse 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And just this this paramount understanding that love is important. We made this kind of very important statement to ourselves last week. The paramount evidence of our spiritual rebirth is love. It's maybe the number one evidence of us being born again, of the Spirit's work in our life, is the ability to love in a new kind of way, in a new level of love. And so it's this new understanding of what the Bible writers use for to define love that we're going to be digging to, into today in chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 7 is the section we're going to concentrate on. I've read the rest of the chapter already to you this morning, kind of jumping around, and now we're going to look at this. These four verses are of really defining what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into an account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things." This is the biblical explanation of love that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is a passage we're all very familiar with, one that we we know really, really well because we've heard it at lots of weddings. Um, it is, we actually had a, a, a wedding gift, a thing that we had hanging a picture frame that we had over our bed for a long time that was the quotation of this passage that was given to us at our wedding. But it's really, really important for us to realize that this passage is not really a wedding passage. This is a congregational. This is a church passage. And so we're going to be looking at our context. But first, in 2010, Barna uh, Research Center did a research on which studies all things about the church, did a, a pretty extensive church uh, study on church attendance. Um, the result of that study, uh, a man named Stephen Mansfield wrote a book by part of what that study revealed called ReChurch. What they found 
uh, through the Barna study, or at least a portion of that, is that 37% of people who disassociate with church, that meaning people who would consider themselves believers, people who would consider themselves Christians, people who at one time went to church, have now disassociated with the body. 37% of those who do that do so because there was some type of hurt feelings, some type of personal conflict, some some ugliness, etc. And so let me put a number on that. 37% sounds doesn't sound too bad. But the resulting number of that is 24 million people in the U.S. disassociate with church because of some event, some hurt feelings. My first reaction when I read that was I was really saddened by that, as I imagine that you are. 24 million people hurt in church and no longer belong to a church. And I thought, how sad. Church is a place where you're supposed to be loved, right? And and here people are coming, millions and millions and millions of people getting hurt in church and then choosing to no longer associate with a church. But then I began to think deeper and about the reality of church and came up with some even worse news than this. The bad news isn't that really that 37% of the church gets hurt at church. The reality of it is probably closer to 100% of people who come to church at some time in their life get hurt. We are, after all, a bunch of people locked in a room together, right? And we bring all our baggage and, and sometimes it's real hurt and really mean things are said and really unchristian things are said and we all have bad days and we kind of run into each other on those bad days sometimes. Some of it's perceived hurt, uh, that, that there was no real intention there, but people perceive hurt. But, but I would say if I was to ask, and I'm not going to do it today, just so you know, if how many of you have had one of these type of events at some point in your church experience, I would probably guess a larger percentage than 37% of us would say, oh yeah, uh, I had something in my life. I've experienced that. That's the real truth. It's sad. I'm sorry it's that way. I don't want it to be that way. We try to avoid that. But the fact of the matter is we are, as Scott just pointed out to us, imperfect. And if we come together, that imperfection is going to fall out on each other sometimes. I know that I've hurt people, let people down, disappointed people, said things that were misconstrued in some kind of way. And if I have done that to you, I truly apologize today. And I would like to say it will never happen again, but I think that's a promise I can't make. I don't want it to happen again. But odds are it will because I, too, am imperfect and human. And and the whole concept, I think, has gotten turned around because we come to church thinking this is a place where I'm supposed to be loved. And we forget we've kind of flipped it around and not realize this is a place where I come to love others, not to be loved myself, but my chance to love others. And, and, and it's in that flip-flop. It's just, we do the same thing with God too, right? We, we come to church so God can take care of us. We come to church so God can look after us. We come to, to church so God can serve us. This, this is about our place where, where God can do good things for us and, and teach us good things. And we forget sometimes that we come to church not so God can for us, but so that we can for God. That we're here to serve Him. 
We're here to worship him. With church is not really supposed to be about us. There's a song that I love to sing, The Heart of Worship. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus, and not me. And we've made ourselves the center of worship in church and not God who we come to worship and serve. And so the truth of the matter is, I really think, and, and the, and the book that Mansfield wrote called Rechurch really turns to the, the real problem isn't people in church getting hurt. It's the reaction of the people who get hurt that's kind of the problem. That they need to be loving to those who hurt them. And we're going to look and see what that kind of plays out with in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today. The reality of that truth that, that people get hurt in church is not new to the modern church. It's not new to the 20th century or the 21st century. They were struggling with this in the first century. And in reality, 1 Corinthians, the entire letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to address many of those very issues. And so let's take a moment to look at the context of 1 Corinthians 13. We love this passage. We, we probably, many of us who have any experience in church, we know this is the love chapter. It's got its own name and we love to read it and think about it. But the context of the love chapter is particularly interesting for those of us in church, especially those of us struggling with the humanness of people we go to church with. So let's take a moment. The context. First, chapter 11. Starts back in chapter 11. We read that last week when we did the communion, when we read the Lord's communion. And, and there's the passage in there. Every time you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. And we read that passage monthly or pretty much monthly. We at least celebrate that teaching there about having communion with each other. But it's interesting that teaching on the Lord's Supper on communion is in a passage where Paul is writing to the church and it starts off in verse 16, 17, it says, uh, I hear and not caring for one another as you should in verse 18. When you come together, I hear there's divisions among you. That's what Paul's addressing. And he's like, and you come together and have communion with each other in a wrong kind of way because you aren't loving each other like you're supposed to. We forget the context of communion is about overcoming our division with one another. He goes on in chapter 12 to talk about the unity and diversity. It's a a classic example that the writer uses to describe the church as a body. There's this unity of oneness, but there's this diversity in gifts and giftedness that we all have a different role that we must play and that we need one another. And one part's not more important or less important than the other, that we all fit into this thing we call the body in very unique ways. And each part must do its own. And so, so we need to really appreciate each other because we're all very, very important. And then... Verse 13 comes, chapter 13 comes and says, this is what the body's supposed to look like. The love chapter is all about congregational love. It's all about how we feel about one another as part of this body, as part of this unity and diversity, about how we're supposed to come together with our communion and our common union and feel towards one another. It's it's particularly about the body of Christ, much more than it is about any man-woman marriage. It's about the marriage we have to one another. If you noticed last week when we kind of gave the right hand of fellowship to new members in our church, 
We go through a, a kind of a little ceremony of I do's, right? Do you, do you, I do, I do, or I will, I will. And then the congregation, we will. And then the elders, we will. And the pastors, we will. We have a, a mini marriage ceremony of our membership showing this kind of love to one another. That we're committing to something to one another and that commitment is divided, is, is described here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. This is the commitment that we make to one another as members of this congregation. So breaking down chapter 13 a little bit further, there's kind of three sections here. The first one is the essential love. That's what we read. If I don't have love, I'm basically nothing. Love, it's essential to love. You can, you can do all the good deeds you want to do. You can make all the sacrifices you want to have. You can be the smartest person in the room. You can have spiritual gifts just running out your ears and able to do all kind of amazing things. And if you have love, it doesn't count for anything. Love is essential. You can have a mega church that ministers to Thousands and thousands and thousands of people and just have a budget that's out the roof and the, you know, the best praise band and the best graphics and the best, all of that. And if there's not love within that congregation, it's nothing. This is what it's telling us. Love is essential. Verses four through seven we're going to look at is the explanation of what that love looks like. And then the last part is the enduringness of love that we read at our time of offering how these things will last these are the things that count if we're going to make investments making an investment in something that will last in eternity faith hope and love more than temporal things and so that's a breakdown of chapter 13 so let's get into to the idea of love in the Bible, you've probably heard this somewhere, there's there's a, a number of different kinds of Greek words used for love. In our society, as I pointed out, we use love for just this wide definition of, of what love means. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a really broad term. In the Greek language, they have different words that we translate into the English love. Uh, one, eros. Is not used in the Bible. It's a Greek word that the word erotic comes from. Um, and so it's basically sexual love. That word's not used in the Bible anywhere. Uh, you've probably heard that there's three. There's actually four. Uh, storge is another one. Uh, it's only used about three times in the scriptures, and it's always used as a compound word. That's why it gets overlooked sometimes. Um, and, and sometimes combined with uh, some, of, some of the other forms of the word love. But it's just this kind of expected family affection that you, as a family member, you have a certain expectation of families care about each other. And there's a passage that says, if you don't have that, if you don't have this expected family love, something's wrong is how it's used in the scriptures. The third one that becomes more prominently used in the Bible is phileo, which we get the word Philadelphia from. And Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And so this is one that we're familiar with. Uh, phileo is the third word of love. It speaks to brotherly friendship and affection. It is the love of deep friendship and partnership. It might be described as the highest love of which man can have without God's help. That this is maybe the highest on our own 
the highest form of love that man can have. It's a, it's one that you see a peop, about people who have some kind of brotherly connection. If you've ever been with veterans who've served in war, there seems to be a bond between them. If they've served in the same war, there's a special bond, but veterans themselves just have a bond because they're, they understand each other differently than those who aren't veterans. And so they have this kind of phileo, this brotherly love and affection for one another because they belong to this group. Firemen kind of have the same thing because they understand each other. They they have their own fraternal order that they kind of get each other and they care about each other in a in a deeper and and more real kind of way. But motorcycle clubs can have it. <laughs> uh, you know they can have it too because they do a certain activity together. Pretty much any organization that you can belong to can develop this kind of intimate care for each other, where you know each other's lives, where you care about what's going on in each other's lives. When when something bad happens, you're there to pick them up or or at least have, give them a shoulder to cry on. This love is the love we at this church, I believe, excel at in many, many ways, that we really have strong brotherly love for one another. But we never want to be complacent about that. We always want to be encouraging ourselves to love each other deeper and to care about each other more in this brotherly love kind of way. And never stop, though, and never and not be satisfied without moving on to the greater kind of love that really and truly puts God on display, brings him glory, reveals our new birth and causes us to rely on God. Because he must help us to move to a higher level of love. And that's the fourth kind of love that we will talk about, agape. I defined it this way, new born again, new or born again love. It's a word because when we read that passage about the essentialness of love, when it says if you do these things, you don't have love, we can wrongly think that Paul is saying if you're not friendly to one another, it doesn't mean anything. But Paul is saying, if you don't have this greater kind of love for each other, it doesn't mean anything. That you can't just kind of stop with brotherly love without moving to this new kind of love that's revealed in who Jesus Christ is. Agape, this word is used, is basically or virtually unused in the first century Greek writings, except for in the Bible. All the first century Greek writings outside the Bible, this word's rarely, if ever, used. But the Bible writers seem to adopt this word. They use it exclusively, and it's used uh, hundreds of times, especially within the New Testament. And it's kind of adopted to describe this new love, this different kind of love that Jesus taught and demonstrated and was evidence of the new birth or the unnatural birth, the spiritual birth, that this kind of new love, this new tier of love is, is new. And the people and the Bible writers are explaining it to us. Strictly speaking, agape can't be defined as God's love. Because men, actually in Scripture, in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 1 John 2, 15, men are said to agape sin and agape the world, to love the world and to love their sin. By definition, it is a sacrificial, giving, absorbing kind of love. The word has very little to do with emotion, and it has much more to do with self-denial for the sake of the other. That's the newness of this kind of love, that it's about giving up of self for the other. 
And so we read, love is patient, love is kind. And so what I'd like to do today is take a moment and look at this scripture and have four qualities of this higher love, four qualities of this new love, four qualities of the rebirths person love, four qualities of agape. They are, I'll give them to you at the beginning, faith-filled, focused on other, forgiving, and fixed. And so we're going to take this, these passages and kind of lump them together into some broad categories and compare those categories to how God loves us and therefore how we're supposed to love other. This kind of love that marks the life of the Christ follower is the kind of love that the Holy Spirit enables us to, to have and to show. Um, and I think we must cooperate with him in this work. That this is what the, this is why we say you can only go so far without God's help. That the Holy Spirit must help us have this really unnatural kind of love. This is supernatural love. This is the love that's like God's love. This perfective love that we're seeing in part and realizing in part and showing in part now, but that one day we will see and know fully. There's a phrase that I'm working on for an upcoming sermon series that you'll hear quite a bit, I think. Um, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do this, but he will not overpower us to do this. And by that, I mean, there's a certain willingness that we must have to God's changing work in our lives as we move forward and try to reach different kinds of love that are not natural to us. Left to our default or natural way, we will not live this way. And so I mentioned our, nat- so I'll mention our natural tendencies that we must fight against and be aware of so that we can shed them from our lives in order to be like Jesus. As it says in Ephesians chapter four, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. As we discussed last week, who's going to die? Will it be my old me or my new me? Who will I put on? And so let's take a few moments just to kind of look at these qualities. The first one is faith-filled. It starts off, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. Um, What I'm trying to point out here, think about what it means to be patient with someone. That you're always hoping the best for them. You're always trusting the best. They're going to get it. They're going to change. I'm going to give them one more chance. I'm going to give them one more chance. Just constantly being waiting. One place in the Bible it's described, patience is described as long suffering. That God waits patiently. That he suffers those years of our ignorance and our disbelief. Those years that we struggle to really put our faith in him. And he remains patient. Always giving us another chance. Another chance. Another chance. He's faith filled. He thinks the best of us and doesn't give up on us. He's kind. He doesn't give us what we deserve. But gives us that other chance. If God really wasn't in the kindness of his heart. Wouldn't he have been done with us a long time ago? Wouldn't he have said... all right, I've given you like 1,723 times here, you know, all right, that's it, you know, that's it. But no, he's patient and kind, not giving us what we do deserve, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we don't deserve, this patient love. He's not jealous. He's there trusting us. It's interesting um, that... The, that even though in the in Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 it says God is a jealous God he's talking to his to the Hebrews before they go into the promised land and he's warning them I'm a kind of one one person person 
You can't divide your loyalties to me. If you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, it's going to be an exclusive relationship. And then he sends them in and he warns them, be careful of the land you go into because there are all these idols. And instead of stopping them from going them, he trusts them and lets them go into the land and says, make sure you stay faithful to me, even though you're going to be tempted by all these other things. He shows a real trust for his people by letting them go into the land and seeing what they'll do. And so I think the idea, the best idea that I have for us to practice being faith-filled is to think the best of one another and to not give up on one another. Not, you know, to be patient with one another. They're coming along. They're coming along. They deserve another chance. Oh, I'm going to be kind and give them another chance and another chance and another chance. And not, and be trusting that they will be there. The Bible describes God's love for us for example, the, the book of Judges. The book of Judges is just a record of God's patient kindness with his people. Over and over and over, they don't follow him. And they turn to him and he goes, okay, I'll give you another chance. And he, they do for a while and then they fall away and then they come back and then they fall away and then they come back and they fall away. And God's patient, kind love is just shown over and over and over. And I think it's a testimony to us that God will be likewise patient. He has, I think it's probably fair to say is that God has more faith in us than we may have in God. He's faith-filled when he comes to us. He trusts us and he, he's patient with us and he's kind to us. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness or your faith-filledness, that He is faithful to these things. Second Timothy 2, 13 says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And so as we think about loving one another, it's always thinking the best of one another, always never giving up on another, being there for them patiently, kind, trusting. And so we must fight. Our fight that we fight in church is suspicion. The opposite of being faith-filled is suspicious. And we come to one another and, oh, they're up to something. Can I trust them? Mm, you know, they're getting one more chance and that's it because I know they're going to blow it again. And, and just this general suspicion of one another and that we are not trusting one another. We don't think the best of one another. They're up to something. they got an angle. What are they trying to pull here? In our thoughts. And so this is what we must fight against in order to be faith-filled, thinking the best of one another. Focused on the other. It goes on to say, love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly. To brag is to promote self, to put ourselves before others. But love focuses on the other and promotes the other instead of self. To be arrogant is to think highly of oneself. Instead of thinking highly of the other and to love is to think highly and better of the other person than you do yourself and to act unbecomingly is to be uncontrolled in those aspects. One simple way that I think we can live this kind of focused on the other love that we're called to is to not be comparative, be competitive or comparative. That's to brag and to be arrogant. That, that when we come to church, we're not in competition with one another. 
You know, we're not, oh, they got to do Sunday school last year. I better get my chance this year. Or, you know, they sang three solos in the last year. I'm certain I should get to sing at least one this year. We're not in competition with one another. Oh, he gets to be an I, you know, and I'm just a lowly foot. It's about time for me to become an I, don't you think? And and so there's this, sometimes we get this competitive spirit that, you know, well, he's been asked to pray 17 times in, in you know, three weeks. And, you know, where's my chance to, to get up there? I've been working on a good one, too. You know, I got it written down and people are going to be impressed with my my prayer this week. And so we become competitive with one another in this place. I bet I'm better at or I should. And then we become comparative. You know, we look at each other and, and why is it always that person? Why is it that person? Why do they and why shouldn't I get? Don't I get? Shouldn't I get my turn? And we become these two this is bragging and being arrogant. And then we start to act unbecomingly if we go down that road of comparison and competition with one another. That's why Paul is talking to the people. He says, you're part of a body. You're all important. You have different roles, but that doesn't mean there's an important difference there. Don't compare and compete with one another. And so we must be focused. We see that this the focus in this place is always supposed to be the other. Psalm 8, 4, and 6 says this, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? It's a question the psalmist is writing to God. You're God. Why do you think about us? Why do you even pay attention to us? But you've made me a little lower than God. You crown me with glory and majesty. You make me rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under my feet. Why does God think about us? Because God's kind of love, the agape kind of love, is other-focused. And God just always is thinking about us. The, the creative order shows that God has very high thought of us because we are the height of creation. First John 4.10 says, This is love, not that, God, that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His own Son to be the propitiation of our sins. For we love because He first loved us. God's focus his love is on us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. See, agape is other-focused and not self-focused. And so what is our fight? Self-centeredness. We tend to think about ourselves and not think about the other. It's interesting that I believe in churches we've adopted what I would call airline protocol. When it comes to loving, you know, when they, the stewardess goes through the flight attendant, excuse me, I'm showing my age. The flight person shows you all the protocols of emergency and then the little mask falls down and they say, now make sure you put yours on first, then care for somebody else. And so we've adopted that same kind of protocol in all things within the church and, and loving this people especially. We'll say things like, you can't care for others until you care for yourself. You can't love others until you love yourself. You can't forgive others until you forgive yourself. All these kind of pop psychology things have put us and me taking care of myself as primary over you. 
But I don't think that's true, and I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us to do, that we are supposed to love first and care about being loved second. We had a principle within the within the the, the camp I worked in with the boys, one of the things we tried to get them to do is, is when you help others with their problems, your problems will grow smaller. When we take the focus off ourselves and put it on others, we tend to get what we need better than we ever got it before. And so we, we need to, in the church, take care of others and then worry about being taken care of ourselves. The other uh, quality of agape is forgiving. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take an account of a wrong suffered. But it re- and does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. The fact of the matter is forgiving is paramount to love. If love, we made this statement, if love is the paramount evidence of a personal spiritual rebirth, then forgiveness is the paramount evidence of a person's love. If love shows our spiritual rebirth, then forgiveness shows our love. Does not seek its own, doesn't try to build its own case, isn't defensive, isn't justifying, is not provoked, doesn't come to anger or gossip or retribution, doesn't take account for a wrong, doesn't hold a grudge, but forgives, doesn't rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth and remembers the truth of, I don't get what I deserve. I've been forgiven, so I probably should forgive. The truth of the matter is forgiveness is is huge within scriptures. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, to hander hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Matthew six fourteen and 15. For if you forgive your trespasses, others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Last week we talked about one equation as our love, the, our brother word love equals our God word love. This week we have another equation. Forgiveness received should equal forgiveness giving. The forgiveness that we've received from God should equal the forgiveness we give to our brothers in this place. It is paramount. And we struggle, if we're honest, we struggle with grudges, bitterness, and remembering. The Bible says when our sins are forgiven, God chooses to remember them no more. But how many times have we said, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget it. And we hold on to these things. And God says, no, I choose not to remember it. I cast it away as far as the east is from the west into a sea of forgetfulness because I love you. And forgiveness and love are equal. And our final quality of agape is fixed. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a way we live this is an old-fashioned word in the society in which we live in. Committed. <laughs> Be committed to one another. Back to our 24 million people. What the real problem is, is one, I think they struggle with forgiveness of their brothers. And then they're not committed. 
And so as soon as things didn't go the way they wanted to, as soon as they got their feelings hurt, which sadly is going to happen, remember it, hold a grudge, and then their commitment becomes very casual. Oh, I can go somewhere else. And so the commitments we make to one another should be binding. They should be for better or for worse in sickness and health. When you hurt my feelings and when you make me feel good, I will be here and be your brother and love you and forgive you. And we will show the world we are Christians by how we deal with our conflict, not by how we deal with feeling good with one another. The test of any marriage isn't how well you're doing on anniversary day. It's the other days when you're on each other's nerves and you look at each other and say, it's either going to get worse or it's going to get better, but we're going to be together no matter what. So why don't we make it better? I'll be honest with you. There's been a day or two Shelly's had to look at me and say that. It's either going to get better or it's going to get worse, but we're going to be together. So let's make it better. Let's be committed to one another and love. Romans 8, 38 and 39 reminds us just how committed God is to us. God's not asking us to do something for each other that he doesn't do for us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, or powers, nor height, or depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We should be loving each other. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know my church members are going to be there with me. When I let them down, when I pick them up, when it's good, when it's bad, when it's a struggle, when I'm having good days and bad days, I have faith in the love we have for one another. John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand, my father says, For he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hands. That we are secure, committed in our relationship with God. Hebrews 10 says this, This is hope. We have an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. That our love, the love that God has for us is fixed, secure, an anchor that you can count on. And our love for one another in this place should be the same. But we fight, instead of being committed, we fight doubt, fear, and casualness. That we take our relationships, uh, well, if things don't go there, there's always somebody else or another place I can go. And so we have doubt with one another and we fear. And so what we end up doing is like, you better give it to them before they get it to you. Because we don't trust one another in too many cases. And so this is our fight against doubt and fear and being casual with our relationships and say, I am committed to this. This is that higher kind of love that evidences our rebirth. This is the kind of love that God gives us. It's faith-filled, where he trusts us, thinks the best of us, is patient and kind and forbearing. It's focused on us, and so we should focus on others and be selfless instead of self-centered. Always, it's about you and not me. Forgiving Because we have been forgiven and fixed no matter what. We're here together. It will be good times and bad times. There will be times when I disappoint you and times when you disappoint me. And yet we will love and stay committed to one another until death do us part. (laughs) Kind of idea. This is God's kind of love for us. 
And the kind of love he's saying, my children will now have this kind of love for one another. Now, just imagine if we practice those four things, thinking the best of one another, focused on the other, forgiving each other no matter what, and forever committed to one another. How different would Christians look than the rest of the world? This is how we show the world God's kind of love. By doing it for one another. And that's why we sing, they will know we are Christians. Not because we have brotherly love that they can experience, but we go to a higher love that only God can help us have and enable us to do. So that the world may know him, the one who loved us first.